Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Joshua Wesson has won numerous awards for his expertise in wine as a sommelier and as a retailer. His wine shop, Best Bottles, is on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and Suprema Provisions, his market, Salumaria Wine Bar and Restaurant, is in the West Village. We've invited him back to our show today to share some of his knowledge with you, our listeners. Um, we invite you to give us a call at 212-209-2877 with any questions about wines that uh, you have that uh, you've been dying to <laughs> speak to an expert about. And Josh, thank you so much for doing this. It's always a pleasure to be with you, Len. Uh, one thing that I've wanted to, to clear up at the start is, aren't wine grapes much different from table grapes, the, the ones that we buy in the grocery store? Well, yes. I mean, first and foremost, they're, uh, they're, they're, they're much more varied in their expression uh, of deliciousness. And table grapes usually come in a couple of uh, 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 varieties and from a couple of places. But the magic of wine is that it can express a sense of terroir place. So that means you're getting a specific variety or blend of grape varieties from a place made by a person with a point of view and it comes out in the wine if the wine is made well. Uh, do, are grapes indigenous to uh, different parts of the world? For example, uh, Concord grapes are from the eastern seaboard, aren't they? North northeast. Were yes, they uh, were they brought over from some other place? You no. Know, when uh, when pilgrims came here before <laughs> before the pilgrims, there were grapes growing mm-hmm. in North America for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, not nearly as many types as there are now. But uh, there are, are, are different uh, categories of grapes that uh, one can find to use with wine, not just the elevated vinifera, which is the section of, of the grape world that we're most familiar with, Chardonnay, Cabernet Sauvignon, Sauvignon Blanc, Chenin Blanc, etc. The, the most uh, prolific local grape, I guess, is Concord. Uh, and that is both a table grape and has been used for wines, but mostly for kosher wines. Yes, and I suffered mightily as a child. Uh, <laughs> it was my first wine. Hopefully it won't be my last wine. But uh, the, the Concord grape, uh, as uh, easy as it is to cultivate and, and turn into wine, um, does not give a nuanced expression of deliciousness. So it's, it's something that one can start with but hopefully won't end with. Just about 10% of the people in this country drink 90% of the wine, and some drink wine regularly while others have it only occasionally. Do the occasional drinkers need to know much more about things like grape varietals, tannins, sulfites, vintage years, aging, pairings with food, wh- where, the, where the wine comes from? Well, uh, it's, it's a daunting task to master the, the, uh, the number of, of facts and questions and, and uh, categories that you just mentioned. If one had to do that every time you bought chicken soup, I don't <laughs> think anybody would drink chicken soup. Although there are different chickens out there, and some you Indeed. might prefer an organic chicken. And the place of origin and the type of feed and maybe the vintage and how happy the chicken was. Um, uh, but I, I think that you know, the, the, the magic of wine is, is that it's almost infinite in its expression of variations. But uh, the problem with wine is that it's almost infinite in its expression of variations. And to master that welter of detail when all you want to do is grab a bottle of wine to go with the pizza that you're holding in the other hand mm. can be uh, a challenge. So I think the answer is not to make it too difficult, but to honor the variation and tie those variants to your palate preferences. Because 
No matter how sophisticated or unsophisticated we are as wine drinkers, we all know what we like. And that's the most important thing to know. And you've said that when you were in your wine shop, you heard the same questions all the time. They boil down to, how can I make sense of the world of wine? How, how can I deal with all these choices when all I want is a wine for pizza, for my mushu pork, or as a gift to my girlfriend without spending a lot of money? Well, I think the most important thing that you can do uh, as a, a budding enophile or a person who loves wine but doesn't want to spend the rest of their life devoted to uh, understanding it uh, is to uh, get in touch with your, your inner palate and figure out what it is that you like about wine and then express those preferences in the simplest way, the same way that you would talk about food, to a trusted person either in a uh, wine shop or a restaurant who can translate your taste preferences into an actual bottle. What I've often heard in restaurants is somebody will say, I want a glass of Merlot. <laughs> well, Merlot got a bad name when Sideways uh, came <laughs> out, the movie that destroyed Merlot in the United States and, and, and put forth the proposition that the only wine to drink in the world was Pinot Noir. <laughs> um, it's funny that you mention Merlot because Merlot is having a bit of a renaissance now. Well, I shouldn't say renaissance, but it's coming back. But I always wonder what that means. There's Merlots from all over the world. Is there something that about them that tastes the same, whether they're from France or California or Argentina or Chile? No, well, uh, one of the great things about wine is that uh, if uh, a wine is made with respect uh, and care given to the place that the grapes are grown, that place will express itself in the taste. So Merlot is not monolithic in its presentation of tastes and textures and styles. Uh, it may operate within a channel, but within that channel there are many different variations on the theme. And you would say that about every grape that uh, gets used for wine. Yes, but some grapes are more capable of expressing terroir or capable of expressing nuances and subtleties than others. Um, Concord, for example, uh, operates in a narrow channel, but Pinot Noir operates in a, um, a much uh, wider uh, channel, and you can have Pinot Noirs that are, are uh, on the richer side and riper and full of sweet fruit, and you can have Pinot Noirs that are lean and taut and angular uh, and, and very expressive of the the terroir that they come from. Again, I remind our listeners that if you uh, have questions about wines, uh, Josh Wesson's the man to ask. Our number here is 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. What about wine glasses, uh, which come in so many different shapes and sizes? Well, uh, the good news is that you don't need uh, uh, a wine glass to be uh, specified for a given type of wine, although that is something of a trend these days. And Riedel and a number of other vaunted uh, glass makers produce wine glasses that are um, especially designed to flatter and enhance a specific grape or, or style of wine. So, you, so if you're really serious about wines, you have to have a lot of different kinds of glasses? Well, I think that you can fetishize it a bit uh, and, and go overboard. But uh, the good news is that you really don't need very many glasses to enjoy wine. Wine doesn't know what kind of glass it goes <laughs> in as long as you, you have uh, a big enough bowl and uh, a thin enough uh, rim so it's appealing in terms of its uh, interplay with your lips. 
and the way that it actually feels when you touch it, and uh, and 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 that it, it has a, a shape that allows you to maximize the aromatic constituents in the wine. Wine is basically water with a bit of alcohol and some other things thrown in for good measure. So when you see people so it's water swirling, with flavoring it and is, alcohol. It's it's the ultimate expression of water. It's water's highest and greatest expression. <laughs> and um, and and there's a reason why wine glasses. Uh, are shaped to curve in rather than like a martini glass, which which uh, exists straight out, and that's to allow the aromatic constituents, which are volatile, meaning they evaporate before the water in the wine, to bang around the inside of the glass, and then these molecules pop up through the aperture at the top, and hopefully your nose is waiting to capture all those molecules. And when you say you smell something from wine, you're smelling molecules that have been released from the surface of the wine, banged around in the glass, and then directed to your nostrils. And then, okay, so so people sniff their the wine in the glass, and what are they really learning from that? Well, 90% of uh, what we consider to be taste is actually something that we're smelling rather than perceiving on our tongues. The you know, tongue is a wonderful instrument for discerning sweet, sour, salty, bitter, hot, cold textures, and umami, that mm. savory taste uh, that comes from uh, a, 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 a glutamate, which is a salt of uh, an amino acid. But... Um, uh, 90% of what we think of as taste comes from our sense of smell. When you have a cold, you can't taste anything. Your tongue goes on working just fine, but your nose shuts down for a day or two. And, and that's why people in the wine world uh, spend so much time swirling wine in their glasses and reflecting upon the aromatic uh, expression of that wine because that's where most of the information is to be found. Should we take a call? Yeah, sure. Okay. WBAI, you're on the air. Leonard? Yes, hi. Uh, good morning. How are you today? It's already the afternoon. Have you been drinking? Oh, you can drink uh, now. I, <laughs> I drank heavily last night. Uh, <laughs> thank you for your show. It's always, uh, they're always interesting. Uh, I love wine. Uh, however, if I'm drinking a 15 to $25 bottle of wine, uh, I invariably get a, a really bad headache. If I'm drinking a Brunello, I can eat, drink the entire bottle and never get a headache. And I think it's the sulfites, but I want to know how they're used in wine. I know they're, they're a small amount of occurs naturally, but are the cheaper wines, do they add more sulfites, or you know, what's the story? Well, sulfites, as you said, come naturally from the process of fermentation. Do they create so, head headaches? Uh, well, Because I've they, seen they, people claim that they're not the culprit. Um, I don't believe that they are the primary culprit, although it's possible that someone with a sensitivity to sulfites could react in a way that was uncomfortable or, or, or uh, causing a headache. But there, there are many constituents in a glass of wine, hundreds of different naturally occurring chemicals, any one of which could be a trigger for uh, uh, a reaction that's not positive. That being said, when you talked about 15 to 20 or 15 to $25 wines, uh, and your question was whether they have more sulfites than wines that are more expensive, the answer is no. Uh, there's no direct correlation between the amount of money that you spend on wine and the amount of sulfites used to produce wine. And you mentioned uh, wisely that sulfites uh, can be produced from fermentation, but they're also used as an antimicrobial agent by winemakers to make wines stable, but in tiny amounts, parts per million. And, uh, Although some wine labels will say no sulfites. Yes, uh, because they're, they're below a threshold that's considered important to report. But in fact, 
all wines all wines contain some sulfites, although some are so tiny in terms of their percentage that they're almost meaningless as a potential trigger of a headache or an uncomfortable reaction. Does that help? Uh, yeah, it does, but just uh, uh, added information, when I, uh, I'm able to get a wine, I don't know if I can say the brand, it's Frey, oh, it's, Frey. it's a wine that has no added sulfites that says it right on the label, and with that wine, I don't get any headache. Right. There are a lot of organic wines and natural wines that don't have any added, and that's the important word to stress, sulfites in the winemaking process. But as you alluded to in the beginning of your, uh, your, your question, uh, there are sulfites that are produced just from the fermentation process itself, and there's no way to avoid that. But they're in such tiny amounts that it would be uh, difficult to imagine that wines that are labeled sulfite-free uh, would be causing a problem. That, that being said, instead of focusing on price as a determinant of whether a wine would cause you difficulty, seek out wines that are low intervention wines, wines that are called natural wines, uh, that have no added sulfites, that are made from organic grapes produced uh, uh, by, by careful winemakers who, who pay attention to being as minimally intrusive as possible in the winemaking, and those may, may have better outcomes for you. Okay. Okay, thank you very much for your information. Thank you. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on listener-sponsored, non-commercial WBAI New York. My guest is Josh Wesson, and we are inviting your calls with questions about wine to Mr. Wesson. Uh, our number here is 212-209-288. Seven seven. That's two one two two zero nine twenty eight seventy seven. Let's take another call. Hi, BAI. You're on the air. Yes. The question I want to ask. You talked about sulfites, but a lot of people talk about the taste of wood, or the woodiness, and one thinks the Chardonnay, and they now for, uh, make some Chardonnays in metal, so it doesn't have the woodiness. And then Chardonnays, some of them have a buttery taste. So. I, like to hear your analysis of the different Chardonnays, and you have Chablis, which would be from the Loire Valley. I guess that's also a Chardonnay. Well, uh, you, you bring up uh, an interesting question. What is the effect of wood on the way wines taste? And, and isn't most wine uh, uh, aged in, in oak barrels or wood barrels? No, the vast majority of wine produced all over the world uh, never sees the inside of a, a barrel, huh. um, and 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 most wines are made without the use of wood. You were specifically the caller was talking about Chardonnay in particular, and the way that Chardonnay, which has an affinity for oak, uh, you know, up to a point, um, can express that uh, that that experience of being aged in in wood. But uh, you mentioned Chablis, and for, forgive me for making a slight correction, but uh, uh, Chablis comes from Burgundy, which is not terribly far from the Loire, but not in the Loire itself. It's the northernmost wine region in Burgundy, and one of the defining elements of most Chablis, which are made from 100% Chardonnay, you're right, is that they, they, they don't see wood. Uh, a lot of the iconic Chardonnays that people are familiar with, whether they're from California uh, or Australia or, uh, or, or Burgundy, um, often do have wood as a component of their aging or winemaking process. And that wood can express itself, as you alluded to, in a sort of buttery or soft way. But the vast majority of wines 
don't see wood, and that's because wood is expensive to use. So and you only see the more expensive ones when they talk about how it's got a kind of an oaky flavor. Yeah. You can and assume that was an expensive one. And it's interesting. If you look inside the barrel uh, 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 of, a, of, a, of a wine barrel, you look inside and you'll see the, the area, it looks charred. It looks burnt because, in fact, they, they, they fire the inner staves of the barrel to take some of the elements that are in the wood and downplay them a bit and introduce new elements in there that are favorable to the wines that are being aged. If you go into a wine shop, you find, thank you for your call, you find wines from the United States, obviously, from all over the U.S., uh, from Chile, Argentina, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, uh, European countries, Spain, France, uh, Italy. Um, where are the best wine values coming from? Well, there, there are extraordinary values coming from all over the wine world, uh, and it's just a matter of uh, looking for them. Um, and, and, and wines tend to be priced for uh, many different reasons. Some have to do with supply and demand. Some have to do with <laughs> the, the marketing uh, uh, program and the price point that the wines are, are aimed for. Rarely does the uh, cost of the ingredients and the time in the wine refle reflect itself in the price. Uh, so you can find uh, values in many different places. Right now, I think some of the greatest values in the world come from Portugal. Uh, oh, because, I love Portugal out, yeah. Uh, and, 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 and followed by Spain. Uh, because even though those are, are important wine-producing countries, the, uh, the demand for Portuguese and Spanish wines hasn't pushed the price of those wines up. Uh, but there are wonderful and affordable wines being made in California, in Washington State, in New York State. Um, and we live in the golden era of, of, of wine uh, from a buyer's perspective. There's never been a better time to be a person drinking wine and seeking out deliciousness at every price point from all over the world. Are they less expensive if they come from a generalized region like California rather than Napa or Sonoma or... Uh, if they're a blend of wine grapes, uh, often from different growers rather than from one winery? Well, it, it's, it's not an assumption that you can uh, make always, but in fact, uh, when grapes come from a uh, specific place, uh, they generally are produced in smaller quantities, and therefore the price is a bit higher by dint of the fact that the quantities are limited. If you're talking about wine from California versus Napa or a region within Napa versus Napa itself. And of course, supply and demand becomes an important confounding variable in making the wine priced the way that it is. And then there are some winemakers who have name recognition, and that automatically, I, I assume, adds to the price as well. You see a Coppola wine, you know who, may, who is behind that wine. Yes, but it's interesting because uh, I recently tasted across the entire portfolio of Coppola wines. And I was uh, hugely impressed by the quality at the very inexpensive end of that spectrum, all the way up to the most expensive wines that they make. So they, they make single vineyard wines, they make regional wines, and they make wines that come from grapes grown all over the state of California. Uh, and each one expresses uh, uh, something delicious and, and, and worth seeking out. But the, the price points were... Uh, you know, remarkable to me. There was value at every level there. We're taking your calls at 212-209-2877. My guest is Joshua Wesson. 
And BAI, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. Yeah, my name is Sandra. I'm calling from Brooklyn, New York. Okay. And um, very interesting program. Uh, the question for Joshua is, I hear that California wines are more sprayed, uh, I guess, with toxic chemicals. So usually when I go out, I always ask for wines that are not from California. At least that's how I judge my wine because somewhere I heard, I'm not sure if that's true, that it's more like sprayed with pesticides more than any other place. Is that true? Well, I, I can't say that, that it, it, they use more chemicals in the production of grapes in California than in any other places. There's a lot of industrial agriculture in California, and some of that industrial agriculture is given over to grapes that go into wine. So it's not unreasonable to think that there is a substantial uh, amount of chemicals used to raise those grapes, but there's an overarching trend in wines yeah. coming from grapes, not just in California, but all over the wine world, I to see. create sustainable agriculture and to go beyond that to organic and beyond organic to biodynamic and beyond biodynamic to natural. So, so do you know, is, is it on the bottle if it's organic and the word organic automatically mean that it wasn't yeah. sprayed? It's not required by the government, but it's usually put on the label if the grapes are organically grown or the wine is organically made because it's a point of differentiation that the producer would want to tell. Could she be sure that uh, a wine from Argentina didn't come from uh, a, a vineyard that had been sprayed? No, well, in industrial production of uh, uh, grapes. I don't mean to pick on Argentina. I'm just uh, using can, that can, as an example. It can exact. happen anywhere. It can happen anywhere yeah. grapes are grown for winemaking. Um, but we tend to think of California first because the vast majority of wine that is consumed in the United States comes from California. Um, that notwithstanding, um, there are many, many sustainable producers in California, in Argentina, in France, in Spain, uh, that proudly declare that they are sustainable, that they are making grapes either uh, grown organically or biodynamically. It's a, it's a point of difference and it's a, it's a proud one and one that you should seek out because there's really no downside to, to treating uh, any agricultural product, grapes specifically. Uh, with uh, more kindness and a nod towards natural. Thank you so much for your call. Yeah. Um, okay, one more question. So the best thing um, when you're ordering wine, like let's say from a wine shop from, um, from their app or, you know, it's best to look for something that says um, sustainable or low sulfite. I'm trying to just get the idea if that's the best way. Organic. Not to get, yeah, or organic. Okay, thank you very much. That was quite helpful. And just to repeat, there is a hierarchy in terms of the meaningfulness of those terms. Sustainable is good. Organic is better. Uh, biodynamic better still. Ah, okay. So that would be the, uh, the progression that I would seek out. And, and you don't have to pay a heavy premium to get those benefits. And, and, it, and it's, it's no understatement to say that the wine world uh, is seeking those things out and prizes them as benefits. For Although sure. the president doesn't drink, he says that American wines are better than French wines, California wines. But uh, we plan to do a show next week about his proposed new wine tariffs, uh, so I don't want to go into it in great detail. But what are your thoughts on them? 
Well, I, I think that tariffs are a clumsy tool, and they're particularly clumsy in the world of wine because it's, be, it's a response that has been proposed by uh, uh, the president uh, as a counter to a tax that's being applied for uh, technology mm-hmm. um, in, in France and then, uh, I guess, potentially in other parts of the EU. They're going after Google. And pl- the, the, uh, the problem, of course, with, uh, with a tariff as proposed, which is upwards of 100%, although it appears to be put off for a year right now, uh, is that it would have a dramatic waterfall effect in the wine industry, not just for wines coming from the EU, which would be tariffed at 100%, but businesses that share uh, their revenue stream with uh, EU wines and domestic wines, which would be impacted in a, in a profoundly negative way uh, by dint of the fact that uh, you know if, if you are in the business of, as a distributor of selling wines from the EU and wines from other places, and half of your business goes away, um, it's going to have a dramatic negative impact on the other half of it. So it's going to be all the EU wines, whether they're from Austria, Germany, France, Portugal, Spain, etc. Yes, as I said, it's a very clumsy yeah. tool, and it would have a, a profoundly negative impact, not just on the price of the wines that would be tariffed, but on the businesses that rely on selling wine, all wine. Uh, you know, it, there are, 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 are... And then I imagine the prices of California wines are going to go up because... Uh, of supply and demand. Well, not only that, but the cost of distribution will go up because when your uh, distribution network is stressed with half of your volume being removed or diminished, um, it's going to ha- cause the rest of your business to cost more. And uh, it, it, it's just a, it's a terrible thing that I, I think we're at least blessed with uh, 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 a, a break in the action, and it appears that the tariffs won't be instituted for at least 2020. Oh, well. Um, and we can hope that, uh, that wiser heads, calmer heads, will prevail going into 2021. Let's take another call. BAI, you're on the air. Yes, hi. It's wonderful to hear your show. I was opening a bottle of red wine and making my un- French onion soup. As, as I was uncorking the wine, your show came on, so it's perfect timing. I wanted to ask your guest about, Califor- again, California wines, but when I started drinking wines in the 70s, I wouldn't touch a California wine, whether it was red or champagne, of course. Most, I was drinking mostly French and German, German wines. What le- has led to the improvement in California wines, and in your mind, have they improved? Because that's all I drink right now. I find their champagnes wonderful, and I find their reds wonderful. I'll hang up and listen to your reply. Bye-bye. Well, there's always been a wine industry in California. It even uh, weathered, uh, in, in part, prohibition. But, uh, they were growing Zinfandels during Prohibition because people were using them to make wines at home. It reminded w- Italian immigrants of a grape that they knew from Italy, Primitivo. Yes, and there was always a carve-out for sacramental wine. Um, but that notwithstanding, when you compare the wisdom uh, of growing grapes and making wine in California to the resident wisdom in, in Europe, California is a relatively uh, new environment for growing grapes and, and making wine. And if the, the industry as we know it uh, began in the 60s, the 1960s, uh, and, and has only had 60 years of experience to uh, understand what grapes to grow, where to grow them, how to manage them, how to uh, harvest them, how to turn them into wine, uh, compared to the old world, 
Europe and uh, the hundreds of years of experience over there, uh, one, one can say that, that, that wines from California have been playing catch-up, but they have been made in re remarkable uh, progress in the quality as well as the quantity of wines that are being made. And there is absolutely no doubt that stellar, world-class wines are being made in California from uh, uh, near San Diego all the way uh, up to above Mendocino. I mean, it's, it's a remarkably rich, diverse, and, 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 and delicious environment from which to draw, draw wines. Although now we're also hearing good things about wines from Oregon, from a certain region in Oregon, from Long Island. Well, it, it's no longer a surprise to find wines made in places where you wouldn't ordinarily attribute wine grapes to be grown. I mean, Oregon is a known commodity of deliciousness now, as is Washington, and New York State has been growing grapes and making wine for uh, decades. Mm. But uh, there Upstate, is, mostly. Now it's Long Island as well. But there is wine, delicious wine, being made in nearly every state in the Union. Um, I uh, was in uh, Michigan not that long ago and had the opportunity to try some Michigan wines that astounded me from uh, uh, a number of different grape regions, grape growing regions in Michigan. There, there are great wines in, in, in Virginia and New Jersey and Connecticut. Uh, it's, it, it's, as I said, a golden era for wine drinkers because there's so much deliciousness coming from so many places and uh, it, it's, it's overwhelming. I'm speaking with Josh Wesson. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on listener-sponsored, non-commercial WBAI New York. Bottle of wine, fruit of the vine, when you gonna let me get sober? Let me alone, let me go home, let me go back and start over. Rambling around this dirty old town Singing for nickels and dimes Time's getting tough I ain't got enough To buy a little bottle of wine Bottle of wine, fruit of vine When you gonna let me get sober? Let me alone, let me go home Let me go back to start over Little hotel as the coal in a mine Blankets are thin I lay there and grin Cause I got a little bottle of wine Bottle of wine Fruit of vine When you gonna let me get sober Let me alone Let me go home Let me go back to start over We're back with Joshua Wesson who has been both a retailer his latest shop is Best Bottles on the Upper West Side across from Zabar's is it? And also in the West Village, he has Suprema Provisions, uh, a market, Salumeria, wine bar, and restaurant. And he has won, oh, so many awards from food and wine, from uh, the European Wine Council uh, gave him an award. Uh, he uh, has, uh, was named Retailer of the Year by Wine Enthusiasts. Um, he, well, a lot of different uh, uh, reasons for us to invite him to answer your questions about wine. And our number here is 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Let's take another call. Hello, you're on the air. Hello? Yes, go ahead. Yes, 
I have a question regarding uh, champagnes. A few decades ago, my brother brought over a, sparkle, a, a champagne that was about $125, a crystal vintage. And uh, it was excellent. We drank a few bottles. And then I took out my cheaper sparkling wine from Spain, which was about 5 or $6 about 30 years ago. And there was only about a 20% difference in, in, in quality which led me to believe that you've got to be out of your mind to spend $125 on a bottle of wine that's 20% better than a $6 bottle of wine. And try to get like that bottle. On that. Try to get that vintage champagne for $125 today. They're, they're running way over $200, aren't they? Right, but, not, but so is the $6 bottle. So they're, so they're $12, now. yeah. Well, but right. there, there's a lot of great champagne out there that's not two hundred dollars yeah. a bottle, and there's a lot of great sparkling wine that exists between six dollars and, and two hundred dollars. Uh, I am a bubblehead. I love to drink sparkling wine. I love that it comes from all over the wine world in many different expressions. But you, you know, th you bring up an interesting point, and that is, you know, at what uh, at what point does the premium that a region like Champagne uh, can charge at what point does that premium lose its value lose its benefit and uh, you know there's no direct Wait, excuse me you can only call a, a champagne a champagne if it comes from champagne right champagne true? is a, uh, a region in northern france but by law by law in the eu yeah. is if you're selling wine outside of the eu i mean technically in the united states we can call sparkling wine champagne although it's considered bad yeah. form although some producers still do use that word. But Champagne, in the modern context of the term, refers to a specific region in France. It's the closest wine region to Paris, by the way, and easy to get to for a day trip. If you're in Paris and you want to have a fantastic time, get on the TGV, go to Champagne, have some wines, come back to Paris, have dinner. It's uh, a, 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 an unbelievable ad. So why is it so much more expensive? Because they make them in small batches? But champagne is a small area, and it produces a limited number of bottles per year and it can't get any bigger so when the demand pushes on the supply the price goes up uh, the gentleman was talking about wine from Spain cava sparkling wine made like champagne but not from champagne they from call it method champenoise method champenoise which means the champagne method and it really just refers to the fact that in champagne and where places make sparkling wines like champagne they ferment the wine twice the first time the vat is open and the, the gases, the carbon dioxide, goes up into the atmosphere. The second time they pour the wine into a thick glass bottle. They add some yeast and sugar, which are the two ingredients that you need to, to ferment. And they capture the carbon dioxide, and that's the magic of champagne method, method champenoise. But uh, cava, which comes mostly from the area near Barcelona in northeastern Spain, is an extraordinary value, perhaps the the, the epicenter of great value for sparkling wines in the world. And you need not, even after low these many years that the caller has uh, referenced in terms of his tasting of the wines, um, you don't need to spend more than $15 on a bottle of sparkling wine from Spain to have an incredible amount of deliciousness returned to you. And I was about to say, Len, that there's no direct relationship between the pleasure that you receive and the amount of money that you give in the world of wine. And nowhere is that more obvious than in the world of sparkling wine. There is snob value. So, so okay, so there's a method champenoise, and then there's another way of, there are two other ways of producing public, right? One is you just produce it only in big quantities and vats, and the third is you make it like seltzer. You take wine and you, you, you carbonate it. Right. Uh, you, <laughs> you can do that, and very few producers of, of, 
of, of any uh, you know quality would even think of doing that. But there the, are a couple the, of American mass produced. They do, but they're, 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 but the vast majority of sparkling wine is made in the the way that you referenced, which is in a large vat rather than an individual bottle. It's called the Charmat process. It's the way that ninety nine percent of wines like Prosecco mm-hmm. are made. Does That's why Prosecco is less expensive. Does it make those wines bad? No, it just makes them different because the bubbles in those wines are a little bit bigger and the texture is a little bit coarser, not quite as refined as Method Champenoise wines from, let's say, Spain, Cava, or the United States, or true Method Champenoise coming from Champagne. One of my favorite sub-sections uh, of the sparkling wine world are Cremants. Cremants are wines made in France, exactly like Champagne, but not from the region of Champagne. And the, 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 target most, the most target-rich environment for finding those is, is in Burgundy and in Alsace. Alsace in particular, Cremant d'Alsace, is just uh, it's a gift to wine lovers and, and bubble heads all over the world. And uh, you can find these wines for 15 or $20 in a store, and they just uh, are relentless in their provision of deliciousness. Since we're talking about champagnes, some champagnes, white champagnes, are made with red grapes, and then there are rosé champagnes. It gets very complicated. Well, rosé, of course, is a huge uh, 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 wine in this moment, and it will continue to grow. Rosés are partially made red wines, if you peel the skin of a red grape, the flesh is green. You can make a white wine from red grapes by preventing the skins from coming in contact with the grape juice. Uh, the way you make a red wine is by allowing the skins to stay in contact with the green juice until the blush, the color, turns from green to pink to red. Uh, Rosés are just partially made red wines with the skins removed from the juice after a short period of time, 8 hours, 12 hours, 24 hours. Uh, in Champagne, it's the only place in all the wine world where rosés are not made that way. They're not made from skin contact. They're made by blending still white and still red wines mm. together. It's, it's an oddity of Champagne, um, but rosé champagnes are enjoying a moment right now, as rosés are. And in fact, I don't think it's a moment. I think it's a trend that's irreversible. Uh, do you have, I'm sure you were asked when you were, or you are asking your shop, what wines are best to serve at a party or at a large gathering? Well, uh, going back to... Other than bubbly, if you can afford it. I, I think you want to you find wines that, uh, that aren't too anything. Not too sweet, not too acidic, not too alcoholic, not too oaky. So uh, balance is key when you're dealing with wines for a large group. And there are many, many wines that are balanced that, of course, uh, are delicious and uh, interesting and and not terribly expensive. And at the beginning of the show, we talked about how wood can influence the cost of wine, and it's expensive to use oak, especially small barrels. But uh, one of the benefits of of wines that you serve at parties for large groups is that they generally don't have wood, so there's not an additional cost being burdened onto those wines. And, um, And you can find, you know, endless deliciousness from wines that don't see oak. Buy them in the bigger bottles? Uh, I'm a big fan of large formats. By that, I mean a standard bottle is uh, uh, 750 milliliters. It's about 25 ounces. Uh, If you double that, you get uh, a magnum, 
a 1.5 liter bottle, which is just perfect for large parties. Uh, it costs less to fill up a large bottle than it does a small bottle. So the value is enhanced when you buy Magnums versus 750s versus 375s, which are half bottles. And the worst values in terms of size of wine bottles are those 187 bottles that you get on airplanes, mm -hmm. which is often why those wines are so terrible. Let's take another, another uh, call. BAI, you're on the air. Hi, good afternoon. Great show. Thank you. Uh, one simple question. How safe are wines? Meaning there's so much um, herbicide, pesticide, um, you know, Roundup in the, in the soil. Uh, how much of that stuff is left in the wine after this process? Well, is there uh, a place, is there a place you can go and get the uh, basic uh, overview of the chemical residue? There, not very many wines have been tested for uh, residual pesticides. It is something of an unknown because it, it, pesticides are ubiquitous in agriculture, especially in places where industrial agriculture is performed. So the, the, the migration of uh, uh, chemicals from nearby agricultural uh, uh, businesses to grape growers and winemakers is, is something that, that, that is just unquantified and unknown right now. There have been some studies in California to show that, that pesticides like Roundup have migrated into vineyards, but there's no way to paint with a, a, a big brush and determine how pervasive that, uh, uh, that, that problem is. That being said, the safest thing that you can do as a consumer is look for the words that we referenced before, sustainable, organic, biodynamic, because at least you will know within the confines of the vineyard where those grapes that went into that wine were produced, uh, there were no uh, chemicals that could adversely affect your health. So uh, I recommend sustainable, organic, biodynamic in that order, uh, wherever and whenever you can. And because it's become increasingly cost-effective to farm grapes without uh, heavy use of chemicals or pesticides, you'll find the industry as a whole moving in that direction. So it's something that will only increase in terms of availability, uh, that n grapes that are untainted versus what may have uh, uh, existed in the past or the present right now. Okay. Okay, thank you. But would you take a guess? Would you take a wild guess of the percentage of that chemicals in the wine? Well, the, again, it, it's an economic decision as much as it is a qualitative decision for a lot of winemakers and grape growers that uh, if you use too many chemicals and pesticides, you'll end up with a product that's uh, less delicious, less healthy, and ultimately less sustainable as an economic concern. Is this something we can find by Googling uh, chemicals in such and such a wine? Yeah. I mean, if you, I, I imagine because there were a couple of studies of Roundup in particular mm -hmm. because of its ubiquity. Uh, look at it, uh, Roundup, uh, as measured in, in, in wine, and you'll find studies, and I'm sure that you'll, you'll get more quantitative than I ever could. Okay. Thank you so much for your call. Let's take another call. BAI, you're on the air. Hello. Go ahead. Okay. I, I missed a little bit because while on hold, I couldn't hear everything that was being said. But I want to ask the question about uh, – I've heard uh, – I'm on Long Island, and I've – I've spoken to some uh, owners of wineries who mentioned the fact that they have to get their labels approved for the you know each product they come out with each year and so forth. So with the standards on the labels, I want to ask who are the authorities that are approving them, and then is is there a federally 
consistent standard or is it just state? And how do you know the consistency of the labeling as far as uh, the variances in percentage of alcohol or, you know, all in, ingredients, so forth and so on? What's the uh, – is it consistent in how they're measuring it? And who are the authorities who uh, approve the labeling? Well, uh, labeling is controlled uh, by both states and on a federal level. Uh, the, 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 the federal control uh, is very specific in terms of requirements, and uh, the, the representation of alcohol, which you brought up, uh, uh, in terms of volume, uh, is, is strictly controlled. But I do want to uh, mention something that, that a lot of people aren't aware of, and that is when you see the measure of alcohol by volume uh, on a wine label, there is a plus or minus from that number, which is allowed by the federal government, of 1.5%. So if you see 12.5% on a label, it could be potentially as high as 14% or as low as 10.5%. Uh, uh, and um, it's, 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 it's just good to be aware that there is that play in the way that the alcohol can be represented. But uh, in terms of your, uh, you know, uh, confidence in the uh, consistency and the accuracy, I think you can be very confident that, that the wine labels, as represented in terms of grape varieties, alcohol by volume, place of origin, the things that would matter to you uh, are, are, are in fact accurate and, 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 and governed by both state and federal agencies. Thank you so much for your call. I'm, I'm surprised by the kinds of questions you're being asked. They're really great questions. But I assume that people are going to ask questions like um, about nitty-gritty questions like wine pairings, uh, white wines with chicken and fish, reds with meats, what, what wines should we have with vegetables. I'm a vegetarian. What wine should I have if I'm a vegan? Uh, I'm surprised, too, because uh, people have been getting very granular and 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 f and uh, very specific in the questions that yeah. they've been asking, and I would have thought we would have dealt more with consumption than production. But I'm I'm thrilled to talk about either. You know, there, there's there's well, interesting. Well, maybe somebody will call in with that. Otherwise, uh, may at the end, maybe we'll take a couple of minutes for those kinds of questions. Let's take another call. BAI, you're on the air. Hello. Okay. Well, sorry about that. We'll try another. One. That's it. Okay. Uh, so let's talk about wine pairings. Uh, some people are, have almost religious beliefs about what can go with what. Does it really matter? Can I drink a, a Pinot Noir with, uh, with a chicken? Well, <laughs> the answer is yes, and, and you should. Um, in the yawning chasm between rigidity of rules, like you must have Chablis with oysters, or you can never serve Zinfandel with grilled tuna, um, there's the truth, and the truth is uh, uh, variable depending upon your uh, own palate preferences. So the, 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 the first response to your question is you, you can drink whatever you want with whatever you want if it pleases you. Yeah, but some wines overpower the food that you're pairing them with. That, that being said, there are some guidelines that one can follow to achieve uh, as uh, high odds of a proposition of enjoyment and success uh, when you're matching wine with food and avoid problems that uh, could potentially cause you some kind of you know, palate distress. Wines and foods fall in love for the same reasons that people do. Either there are similarities in the tastes and textures 
or contrasts in the taste and textures. And if you understand that and accept that, and in fact it is, it's, 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 it's obvious on the face that it makes sense, um, you can begin to play fast and loose with the, the rules of no this, always that. I would only have a red wine with a tomato sauce, for example, but it, which reminds me, uh, if I'm traveling, should I try to drink the wine of the region? Uh, it's always a great idea to uh, explore the wines and foods of a, of a given place. That so you if you're in Sicily, there are wines that you don't find anywhere else. Well, for example, I'm using that as an example. And not only are there wines that you won't find anywhere else, but in Italy and within perhaps that area of Palermo or whatever mm -hmm. other part of Italy you might be in. But um, you won't find wines from other parts of Italy, let alone other parts of Europe in uh places that are very focused on what they're producing locally. Um, it, it's very difficult to find wines from Calabria in Sicily, mm -hmm. and the, uh, the uh, obverse is, is also true. Uh, but why would you want to drink a Calabrian wine in Sicily? It's a head-scratcher. You'd want to revel in the deliciousness of that which is local and unique, and perhaps that which you can't find easily back home. And I wonder whether the, the, the fact that the vegetables or the meat or whatever uh, coming from the same area as the wine, it's the same terroir as the French call it, wouldn't have an effect. Well, there, there, there's a saying which is true uh, up to a point, what grows together goes together. And uh, it, it's not always the case, but it's a high odds proposition if you're drinking some wine from a region and eating food from that same region, that there was a dialogue, a conversation that took place over decades or centuries that came to put that food and that wine together in a natural and easy and delicious way. Let's take another call. BAI, you're on the air. Hey, Leonard, great show. I love all the topics and guests. You are very professional and excellent at what you do. It really is a pleasure. Oh. I, wa I really want to thank you. I have very uh, quick questions because I know time is always uh, very valuable. And we're Number running one, out of time uh, right now. I'm sorry? And we're running out of time. <laughs> yes, exactly. So let me get to the point. Number one, Mr. Cloak uh, bought all these very fake wines. It was a guy who was doing very good old bottles, and he died. Could that have possibly contributed to his death? The second thing is, what about genetically modified uh, grapes? Are they doing that? And thirdly, there's so much controversy over whether this is good in your diet, wine is good, not too much or too glad. You know, we don't know all of these things about it. There definitely is pleasure in the wine, but is there the benefit of the resveratrol? Yes. Yes. Well, you've and, asked. And uh, also, you know, like in, 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 uh, in the Bible, it says getting drunk off the wine of the harlot. It, there are interesting things in literature in the Bible Although about wine. Although wine is associated with, um, with religious uh, activities all over the world. So uh, anyway, go ahead, Josh. With, with regard to Coke and the purchase of counterfeit wines, I don't think that the, the wine in the bottles uh, was subject to manipulation. It just wasn't the wine that was represented on the label, uh, a less, much less fine wine in the bottle than one was expected. So I, I wouldn't uh, uh, expect that the wine that was in those counterfeit bottles would have posed a health problem. Uh, to the Cokes. But to I, Charles Coke? Yeah, right. well, I, I have a feeling that he drank part. expensive wines. He's very rich. Yeah. Um, uh, with the, uh, forgive me, what were your other two questions? <laughs> well, well, he, 
He's gone. He's gone. Uh, what? Uh, no, no. I'm the. There was that word that. Uh, oh, the resveratrol. Yeah. I guess the. You know, it, it, it's, 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 it's certainly uh, been uh, concluded by many major studies that wine in moderation has uh, uh, some beneficial health uh, uh, aspects to it. The consumption of wine does. If you're not allergic. Yes. Um, and resveratrol, uh, which is an, a powerful antioxidant, is one of those things that one can get from wines, especially red wines, because the vast majority of the resveratrol and the antioxidant benefits come from the skin of the grapes of the wines, and red wines are made with skin contact, white wines aren't, so they have more of those beneficial antioxidants within them. Um, but it's all a matter of uh, degree and, uh, and the amount of wine that you, 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 you consume. It's part of a healthy diet, it's certainly embedded in the, the history and the philosophy of the Mediterranean diet, um, but, uh, but it, uh, it has to be consumed in moderation because after a certain point, obviously, the benefits give way to the, uh, the deficits. There are some grapes that uh, produce wines across the spectrum. For example, Riesling, you can get very dry Rieslings, and the Germans have a, what they call a half-dry Halbtrocken. Uh, and then there are incredibly sweet Rieslings, and most people just assume that Riesling means a sweet wine. Right, and, uh, and that's unfortunate because Riesling is perhaps uh, unique in the world of wine and the world of white wine and being able to produce such an extraordinary range of styles uh, within a single grape variety. And then in Austria, it's different than Germany. And, uh, and in the Finger Lakes, it's mm -hmm. different than Austria and in California and Washington State and Oregon and, and uh, Australia. Uh, Riesling is one of the most uh, magical and, and, and varied uh, grapes in the world. And a lot of wine wags think it's the greatest uh, wine grape to turn into wine. We have uh, very little time, but we have another call. We want to go a couple of calls. We're going to try to get as much as we can in. Hi, you're on the air. Me? Yes, you. Oh, yes. Hi. Uh, I'm Tanya from New Jersey. I'm not, I have a very quick question. I'm not really a wine drinker, but I'm a vegan. And I know that six vegans are always looking for a vegan wine. And I'm, I was always curious, what can be non-vegan? I mean, animals in, in the wine? No, I, I would think all wines are vegan, aren't they, Josh? No, they're not. And it has nothing to do with the grapes or the way that they're grown, uh, but the way that they are processed when the w grapes are turned into wine. There are some agents, some fining agents and filtering agents that are made from uh, animal uh, products. Uh, and those can, can cause a wine to become uh, not vegan. But uh, th there are a significant number of wines that are vegan because there's very little opportunity to introduce animal products into the so process of winemaking. So how would we know? Making. Well, uh, because it's considered a benefit and a point of difference, uh, producers uh, will often reference that the, the wines are vegan either on the label or in the material that they, they have on websites or the, you know. So bombs. you can ask in the shop. Is a a absolutely. And, uh, and, and the vast majority of wines that are made uh, in an organic or biodynamic way are vegan. Thank you so much for your call. You're, uh, as I said, you have a wine shop along with your uh, Suprema provisions. Uh, now, are there certain questions you hear all the time in the wine shop in the few minutes we have left? 
Um, well, uh, people are, are, are asking a lot of the questions that you asked. I'm having a party. What yeah. wine would go with uh, 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 a large group? How do I find that wine that I loved at the restaurant? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the simple answer is to take your, your phone out and take mm -hmm. a picture of the label uh, and then show it to whomever you're, you're uh, source, trying to source the wine from. Uh, I, I can't tell you how, uh, how many times I've been able to track down wines that I otherwise would not have just by dint of having a picture. So uh, you don't need to write anything down. Just you know, take a, a selfie of the bottle. We've barely scratched the surface of this conversation. So um, I'm well. I'm inviting you back sometime in the near future. I hope you, we could do this again. I accept your invitation happily. Thank you so much, Joshua Wesson. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and our executive producer, Jesse Lent, for their invaluable contributions throughout the week. If you're new to our show and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter and on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. And you can leave comments about shows on all of those things. We hope you'll join us on Monday when our favorite home repair experts, Lawrence and Alvin Ubell, will be, help you solve the most common household mysteries. Have a great weekend. And we hope that you'll do your part to keep WBAI financially secure. And one way to do that is by becoming a BAI buddy. So uh, if you can, we hope you will, go to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602. That's 516-620-3602. Become a sustaining member. Uh, it really allows us uh, to plan for the future and to pay our bills. Uh, $10 a month, $15 a month or more, whatever you can afford, uh, it all helps. And we hope that you will do that because WBAI really does need that help. Again, 516-620-3602 or go to WBAI.org. And have a great weekend.